Hi, I'm Jillian Swinford. And I'm Haley Brolison. And this is Mother Nature Will Kill You. A podcast about the most horrific tragedies and the most triumphant survival stories that the wilderness can provide. So grab your backpack and maybe a bottle of wine and let's go on a wild ride into the unknown. Walking down this road I go, but I am going alone, running far, far from home, till I am skin and bone. Capybara, 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 cup. Capybara, capybara, I have seen that. The first time I saw like a capybara TikTok, it was like somebody saying like, I don't know how I got to this part of TikTok, but I'm not mad about it. Yeah. <laughs> but honestly, most of my TikTok for you page has been that cap cut template of like Nicolas Cage yes and then Pedro, yeah where he's like yeah or like Nicolas Cage is like so annoyed and then there's like Pedro Pascal just like I don't know living his best and living yeah. his best life yeah I'm like it like I will scroll through TikTok and it's like video after video after video is just that I'm like dear god yeah it was funny at first but I think it's it's lived out it's unless you have yeah. a really good one then I was about to make yeah, I was about to make one that was like the video is like just me trying to like open up my TikTok account. So like I'm the Nicolas Cage. It's like me opening up TikTok, hoping that this template's not going to be the first thing that I see. And then like the Pedro Pascal part is like just like all of the the templates yeah. being on there. It's like my for you page is just this though. You should it's make one for our TikTok page where it's like it's like me hoping that I'm not going to be extremely disturbed <laughs> listening to Jillian's story and then and then it's like Jillian, Jillian. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny I should do that that's hilarious <laughs> um yeah so that's not that's definitely still happening today by the way we are still we are going yeah. on a disturbing train for sure um I look very red in the video like uh you don't look all that red well I got I did get sunburned this week yeah because I forget that like the sun exists sometimes yeah that's very fair I I'm the same way <clears throat> and I was you know in a sweatshirt and yeah I, yeah so it was like sun sun can't affect me and then I came back and I was like I am so sunburnt and windburned from it's like on your face yeah <laughs> I did that when we were in Miami for the boat show I was wearing a tank top and I was like oh I should get my face and like my shoulders and my arms like you know mm-hmm. sunscreen and then I get back to the hotel room and I'm like oh my god I did not like realize that my chest was this exposed in my tank top and yeah. like my whole chest was just so sunburned I was like no wonder people <laughs> were asking me if I was okay I was like, I've been putting sunscreen on. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm sure it looks way worse than it is. 
because for me like the sunburn definitely always looks way worse than it is I was like I'll be really oh, yeah. red it's okay like I might peel like a little bit but it's not like I'm like molting yeah. or anything I mean um, I'm probably gonna get cancer at some point because yeah I, I'm sure if my mom heard me saying this she'd be like Jillian Swinford but like <laughs> It's not that I forget to put on sunscreen most of the time because I do work out in the field and yeah, I am it's... constantly applying, but we are out, you know, for sometimes 12 plus hours every yeah. day in the, the summer. The reapplying so. part. Yeah. It's yeah. Hard. Yesterday, it's hard to keep up. <clears throat> yesterday we were on um, a fishing charter trip and we put sunscreen on in the morning and then like in the middle of the day, the captain is like, oh, if you guys don't mind, I'm just going to like take a take a minute here to like reapply some sunscreen and my boyfriend and I looked at each other like yeah we should probably do the same thing (laughs) (laughs) that's a good reminder (laughs) I was like yeah I did not I was not thinking about that that's that's true so yeah yeah I guess I just haven't been out lately in the in the direct sun like that so I just wasn't thinking about because it's still kind of sometimes chilly here although the weather has been freaking gorgeous here well you guys got some of that cold front that's moving across didn't you yeah just a little bit though. a little bit of it yeah, yeah it was it's when I mostly saw... like north texas that is getting the cold fronts now yeah when i saw a cold front was coming i was like "Ooh, can you guys please just like a little bit down here that'd be nice <laughs> <laughs> it's been like 80 something like yeah. mid 80s i'd say which is like you know that's fine but it, i i do love a crisp 60 70 degree day mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> a, little, a little break from the heat would be nice and it's only february or i mean march it's only march i know, I know. like <laughs> i know we're already getting into the low 80s sometimes and i'm like no just stay in the yeah. 70s for the love of god but it's been I like s- oh so nice so we've been getting yard work done and just generally enjoying before may rolls around and it's you know you have to do anything outside you know yeah i saw on facebook like one of the keys weather pages said that our february was second like to be tied for or like it was second in like driest february i think the last time february was that dry it's like tied for like 2011 and like 1922 or something like that wow yeah we just it's been pretty dry down here which That's good, though yeah i mean i don't know it's one of those things like it's like bittersweet i guess because there's this fire break trail behind our house and there's a quarry that you can walk to oh, yeah. but most of the time when the tide's high and it has like rained a lot like it's too wet to really like walk over there and we've walked over there when the water is like ankle deep we just get like the right shoes to do it mm-hmm. but the other day I showed my dad that area and it was like so dry I was like mm-hmm. I've never been on the other side of this quarry before because it's always <laughs> been so wet <laughs> so it's like it's cool to be able to like walk around like a, a spot for once but yeah I don't know. yeah as long as we don't have a summer that's as dry as last summer because it was just it was so the drought here is yeah. so bad I'm sure and uh, you can tell because of the jalapenos that I candied are from like last year are mm. so spicy. <laughs> so oh, spicy. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but funny. I'm excited because uh, we're going to start putting together our garden today, our veggie nice. garden. Nice. That's awesome. That. I'm trying to get into that too, but I have like, I have a landscaper coming, I think 
next week, two weeks from now, maybe. Because our whole yard is just like rock. And yeah. I'm like, I don't know the first thing about trying to put grass in. I think we might do artificial grass. I got a piece of it from Home Depot, like the pet safe or pet mm-hmm. friendly, like uh, artificial grass. And Waylon has just been loving it. <laughs> I was like, see, I knew that you would like this. Like you definitely yeah. need a soft spot in the yard to just like lay out. Mm-hmm. Like he, it's just all rock. It's awful for him. That's and funny. Marzi's the opposite. She hates grass. She loves oh, really? laying on our concrete. Like, yeah. She's like, <laughs> well, and then like long term too. I'd love to get some sort of like concrete slab underneath the house, mm-hmm. so it he probably would lay under there too. But yeah, yeah. So the whole whole outside is just rocks. I'm having a landscaper come to like talk through some stuff because ideally. And I want to get like some sort of grass in, whether that's artificial mm-hmm. or sod or whatever. And then I want to put like a butterfly garden <clears throat> and like I want to get a beehive and I want to put that. What? Kind of, like, yeah. Uh, but that it would be so cool. I want to put that in like the corner of the yard and mm-hmm. then have like a little vegetable garden and stuff like that, too. So I love the veggie garden and I've definitely gotten better because I started in Virginia so I've been doing it for, I want to say like six years now. And it just, I keep getting bigger and bigger each mm-hmm. year. Like um, I have so many tomato plants and pepper plants ordered this year. It's ridiculous. And I'm so nice. excited. <laughs> but I have pepper plants growing in a little um, clay pot right now, but I just need to break them up and like put them in something that gives them more space. But I want like the pollinators too, you know, I, I'm, I think yeah. I'm going to. I mean, I'm going to call it like the pollinators patch or something like that, like a little nickname for it. Yeah, I need to do that. I need to start planting some plants specifically for pollinators because sometimes I have to hand pollinate my squash plants and that's just a pain (laughs) to do (laughs) because we don't have a whole lot of bees down here. I don't know if it's because we're by the water and so we get I mean, we're by the water too. Yeah. But like we're not on a canal, but we're like back from a canal, but technically like island. So, so I don't, I don't know, but maybe I should do that. Who knows? Yeah. I asked my neighbor if that was okay with him to get bees and if they were allergic or anything, cause where it's going to sit, is going to be like catty cornered, like to the fence line that we share. And on the oh, other side of that yeah. fence line is like his garden. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I, when I asked him, I was like, I figured like pollinators would help you guys too. But I also want to make sure like no one's allergic because if right. you're over here, like, oh my God. And he's always wearing one of those like carbon filter, like masks. masks whenever he's out there and my boyfriend and I were like I don't know if he like wears that because he's spraying something or if he mm-hmm. wears that because he's like allergic to something yeah and but like we've never seen him without that mask on so yeah so that's why we asked and we're like chances are he's probably allergic to bees if he's like wearing that <laughs> mask yeah all the time but that's- you know he said it was fine and I was like okay cool thanks I was like we're not gonna get it right away we still need to like you know do our research and everything but I just wanted to get wanted the verbal. to check yeah yeah have I ever told you work. about how we found out how Corey is not allergic to bees because he got stung once so <laughs> his dad is like super duper allergic like EpiPen allergic oh wow yeah and Corey somehow managed to never get stung by a bee in his life until he started dating me <laughs> <laughs> So he didn't know if he was allergic or not because he'd never gotten stung. So we used to take like uh, every year of trip in autumn, like up to Charlottesville and, you know, Shenandoah and all that. 
up there. Um, and we were hiking Crabtree Falls. Oh, sorry. Boys. Oh, yeah. Crabtree Falls. It's, it's like, you know, a mile up a waterfall, basically switchbacks. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so it's it's pretty strenuous. And we get we used to go with all of our Vims people. And um, so we're on our way up. And all of a sudden, Corey gets stung by a yellow jacket, pulls it out oh. of his hand. Oh, no. And we're halfway up this hike. And so, everybody's like, stops for a second, like, do we panic? <laughs> well, half of our party just took off towards the top. And me and Jack from Vims, we were just standing there looking at Corey. And Corey's like, uh, I've never gotten stung by a bee before. So I don't know if I'm allergic. And <laughs> Jack just looks at him and goes, uh oh. And so we sit like stopped and waited for like 15 minutes to see if anything would happen. Yeah. And then it didn't. So we're like, okay, we're gonna keep going. So we go up, we have a good time. Everyone makes fun of Corey for getting stung by a yellow jacket. On the way back down, we're going through this narrow the same narrow section. It's very like sheer cliffs and then like a big rock wall on the other side, right? Mm-hmm. And so you kind of have that's the only way you can go is straight on the path and there's a bunch of people sitting around um on the rocks on the other side of it and there's some kids crying and we pass them and we kind of look at them like okay and as soon as we go through that section of the trail we get swarmed all of us got swarmed Did someone step on a hive or something by yeah somebody disturbed a hive or like oh, it was God. right next to the trail so like people were passing it all day so oh, that's God. how Corey got stung on the way up but i yeah. got three on the way down <laughs> oh no oh my god and Corey is like I never saw you jump so high you jump like a cartoon character when you got stung. <laughs> and Corey was the only one who didn't get stung on the way back <laughs> that's funny so everybody got you know they got uh their reward for making fun of him yeah (laughs) karma came right around real quick (laughs) that's hilarious yellow jackets are no joke though in virginia like they're different i don't know if you've ever gotten swarmed by yellow jacket nests i have yeah i've gotten swarmed by stinging insects multiple times i just can't remember if they were yellow jackets or not Well, you would know because they can sting multiple times and they like crawl up inside your clothes and continue. Yeah, I don't know. I don't maybe not. I don't know. Um, Because when I was a kid and we lived in Maryland, we had this wooden deck and I stupidest shit. My cousin Natalie goes out and I must have been like six because we moved when I was eight. Mm-hmm. And so and she was two years younger than me. I don't know. We were like, we were young though. And so I, she jumps it. It's like my birthday. She jumps out onto the wooden deck, first one out, whatever. And it's like, you know, a little kid jumps. So you like run out the screen door, jump on the deck. She runs off the deck. No problem. I run out, swarm of bees just surround me. <laughs> she went first. Nothing happened. I come second. All hell broke breaks loose. And I guess there was a hive underneath the deck. Mm-hmm. And, like, just after jumping on it, they're like, what the fuck is this? And just, like, sworn me. And I got, like, stung three times. I was like, it's my birthday. Like, <laughs> um, there's that. And then I was walking in the woods with my brother and one of his friends. And they were in the Boy Scouts at the time. And his friend was like, Haley, don't take another step. Like, there's a, 
a, a hive. Like, I don't know. I forget what kind of hive it was. And I was like, bullshit. I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking. I was like, okay, guys. And I like took another step and I stepped right on the hive. And then- <laughs> it probably was yellow jackets. Yeah. They hive in the ground. Yeah. And um, yeah. And then, you know, I was working in Sarasota and fisheries and I was taking out a seine net and shaking it out to dry it and hand clipped clipped a live one that was yep. cool I, it was like my wrist area i was like god that hurt and then like my whole like my veins in my arms started turning like bright blue i was like oh no I, like i don't know if this is an allergic reaction or not because like i'm not i'm not allergic to bees like i've gotten stung by them like so many times <laughs> i was like i guess we'll see what happens in 24 hours yeah and then more recently i was trying to check my dad's um car under the hood and like you know how under the hood there's like that latch that you have to like find mm-hmm. when you like pop it. Hand fucking got a dead bee. I was like <laughs> like I was moving my hand down there and I like felt something prick me and I was like god what was that? And I like look and it was like a dead stinging insect like a bee or whatever jacket or something. And so had its stinger. And it saw its stinger. I was like dear Jesus. Like <laughs> Like, it's I was a like, miracle that any of us survive let's be honest <laughs> yeah i was like that's it i'm not messing with this car today like i'm over it it was when one I, of those days where i was really tired and then that happened and i was yeah. like all right <laughs> we're done when i used to work uh for over the summer i worked for the bull run mountain conservancy near where our parents live and we were running summer camps and these kids would walk straight into yellow jacket nests all the time but because you're the counselor, you have to sit there and pick out the yellow jackets from underneath their clothes with your fucking Ugh. hands. Ugh. It was a, it was so good. It was great. Yeah. Great. Ugh. It turned me off from terrestrial biology. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. No, thank you. Yeah. Now we just have to worry about like alligators and sharks. That's cool. Right. <laughs> I mean, they're big, so you, you can sometimes see them. We were pulling a seine net somewhere in Sarasota at one point and like some resident nearby was like oh we just saw a four-foot alligator over there last week careful and I was like and I'm like up to my waist in water and I was like sick (laughs) thanks for telling me right now yeah there are gators at two of my uh eel sites actually and I see them pretty frequently it's great it's fun good time oh my goodness are you back hello come up wow 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 Hi, Marzi. Yes, it. <laughs> I'm a, uh, I'm dog sitting right now too. I'm dog sitting Piper, which is Waylon's girlfriend. She comes, she comes seasonally because her parents are snowbirds. Uh, I see. Just, it's just the season for her, and she's here until Monday. And she's got a couple weeks ago. Bug in her butt this morning, so I apologize Aww. if you hear little tippy taps in the background. She's that's fine. She's in the mood to play. Oh, good. I'm like. All right. Well, are we ready to? Uh... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is Marzi ready? <laughs> Marzi, you need to chill, puppy dog. Stay up here and lay down. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Are we ready to get into our story? <laughs> yeah, I believe we are. All right. This one is one of those ones. It's depressing, but it's like creepily fascinating at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um. So we talked a little bit about diving last week and Mm -hmm. we are gonna really talk about diving this week um because we are going once again 
cave diving. Oh, ba, God. Ba, ba. <laughs> nice. And this by nice, is, I mean not nice. Yeah. This one is like freaky too, like on so many different levels. So, all right, let's go. Let's do it. So, I'm already looking at the pictures. <laughs> oh, yeah. So the ones we leave behind leave marks on our lives, whether we know them personally or not. Something reminds us that they were like us, had hopes, dreams, loved ones in a life now put on hold. When someone dies doing what they love, the feeling can be bittersweet, especially in one community that seeks the greatest depths as their highest peaks. These are people who have a love of darkness, the deep places, the untouched regions of the world. Many of them perish in the effort to achieve their ultimate goal and cannot be retrieved and therefore rest forever in their dark tombs. But what happens when one of their brethren try to bring them back out, risking becoming another lost themselves? What happens when the darkness pulls too strongly? This question, this is a question cave divers face every time they dive, knowing that they too may become another body. Another news story, another statistic of the cave they enter. So today we're going to be talking about Bushman's Hole, which Ooh. sounds like a porn. It it does. Movie. So. <laughs> which it makes does. it like hard to say. Yeah. <laughs> just like, ooh, Bushman's Hole. All right. <laughs> Try not to get your mind in the gutter this episode. <laughs> So Bushman's Hole, also known as Bozeman's Get Cave, is located in northern South Africa and at first looks like a small hole in the ground filled with water or is a pond. But in actuality, below this unassuming entrance is the third deepest freshwater cave in the world. The cave sits at the base of a steep crater cliff that falls hundreds of feet from the grassy hills above. Although there is a path to get down to the entrance pool. The cave is an 885 foot, 270 meter deep sinkhole on Mount Caramel in South Africa. Although real depth, the real depth is thought to be deeper, potentially as deep as 927 feet. Um, wow. Yeah. And they're still trying to figure that out because you can't really go down there. Mm-hmm. Well, you can, but it's extremely risky, right? So within the top 60 meters, diving is restricted to a long funnel, but the cave system expands and leads to different sections below, many of which haven't been explored yet. The top 20 feet is like a small slot that is just wide enough for a man's body to go through. Diving the cave has been described as claustrophobic at the beginning, until it opens up into a wide black space. And then it's described as the closest you can get to spacewalking while still being on earth. So it's like an upside down funnel, basically. Yeah. What this cave looks like. So to give you an idea of the cave size, if you take the Eiffel tower and stand it on the floor of the cave, only the top of the tower would just be coming out of the water. Um, I just want to pause and let you know that I'm already feeling claustrophobic looking at this <laughs> image. Of it's the, weird of the cave a, diagram. It's a big cave. It's huge, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't even make it past the first entrance. Oh no, I'll just float <laughs> at the top. 
I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> like, I do not. That's, I don't like feeling claustrophobic. I don't like feeling like even when people stand really close to me, I don't like that. And I can't go to like going to like festivals or like big events where there's like a ton of people. I I I hate crowds. Yeah, I don't like that either. Or like concerts now. Yeah, I was never that person that liked to go to the club. Like I'd like to go Mm -hmm. to a bar. Like there's a difference between a bar and a club, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like I cannot. I don't do clubs. I could, I could never do them. I hated being that close to people. Well, it's dark and it's loud and there's flashing yeah. lights and it's just, it's so overstimulating. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So, yeah. So it's going to, I don't know that it's necessarily claustrophobic. This is more, less about the claustrophobia of the cave and more about the extreme deep diving that goes on in this cave. Oh, I'm sure it is. I'm just yeah. saying, just looking at how, you know, oh, yeah. it's like an inverted funnel. Like I could never make it past that that small part right because you have to like like squeeze through to get in and out of this thing yeah and i'm sure they had to like take their tanks off and push it forward and whatnot Mm -hmm. do all that technical stuff Mm -hmm. i just like to leave my tank on i don't like to take that stuff off nope (laughs) no thank you so most of this cave is lifeless save for a species of blind cave shrimp but there's really not anything down here other than more rocks and stuff like that so it's only really accessible to those who are deep diving and cave diving experts Hmm. so considering how deep the cave is which is almost a thousand feet there are only a handful of divers that have been anywhere near the bottom of this cave there are only a dozen divers in the world to ever dive to these kinds of depths period And to put these kind of depths into perception, open water, like to get your patty for open water, is 100 feet. Like that's the deepest you go. And technical diving, anything that requires, you know, different air mixtures or, you know, additional expertise and classes happens after about 150 feet. Hmm. There have only been six people to pull off successful dives below 820 feet. So oh my God. we could only, you and I could only dive <clears throat> at like the top, like 10% of this cave. <laughs> Which is just fine. Right. <laughs> That's all I need. Oh, the only way to get out of the cave is to lay a slot line or sorry, a shot line or a trail of rope behind you. Otherwise you may become lost and disoriented in that black open space because you can't really see the walls because it's that big in there yeah and i have dove in conditions that they were not nighttime conditions but the water was super murky and it was on my checkout dive and we were diving in a quarry in virginia so obviously like the visibility is gonna be shit yep (laughs) and so like we go down and then like i like you can't even see your hand in front of you Mm -hmm. and so like we're on one of those rope lines to go down and like my instructor's hand is above mine and I kind of like tug on it to like resurface and we resurface like are we going down this like what is happening I was like I cannot see anything and he was like oh well sometimes it gets clear at the bottom like we'll go all the way down and then like see because you know you're supposed to do your checkout dive you're supposed to do all those like scales that you learned in the pool mm-hmm. on this dive and it's like I how are we going to perform these if I can't even see you you know right. like <laughs> and uh and so 
we go down and it gets a little clearer, but then he gives like the thumbs up ascent signal because it's he's like, you know, we ascend and he's like, yeah, it's way too murky to do this. And but then when we resurface, he's like, oh, that's like night visibility. And I was like, yeah, I hate this. Like, I cannot see. <laughs> like, I, I felt claustrophobic because yes. I I could not see in front of my face. Like, I yeah. couldn't even see the, the line I was on. I just knew yeah. it was there because I was holding it. I think my hand had to be like two inches from my eyes for me mm-hmm. to see it. That's how murky it was. Yeah. I was like, I was like, if this is what night diving is like, put me down for a no. Like yeah. I hate this. <laughs> I only really like diving in super duper clear water. Yeah. Like, I'm very picky about that. Yeah, me too. Don't give um, a shit about swimming in it. Like I'll go to the Atlantic Ocean and the Outer Banks. I'm like swimming that all day. Oh yeah. But but if I'm putting my face underwater and like diving it, yeah. I kind of want to see where I'm going. Yeah. The thing about this water is it is clear, but it's pitch black. So yeah, you unless you have a light. And and they say so Don Shirley, which is one of the divers we're gonna be talking about today, says of the experience that you're in pitch black, absolute pitch black. So if you shine the light in any direction, it will disappear. That's how oh. wide the cave is, too. Yeah. So that's your eerie. light doesn't even hit the walls, right? Yeah. I would think that there's sharks in there, even though there's not sharks in there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. just like your fear. <laughs> yes. Like I can't see anything and I know this is fresh water, but <laughs> <laughs> there's definitely sharks for sure. Yeah. <laughs> definitely sharks in here somehow. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it says uh the darkness will eat the light. Basically, being in a 900 foot cave, you might as well be on the moon. In fact, I think more people have walked on the moon than than have actually been to those sort of depths in caves. So, we're talking about like very specific (laughs) group of people who want to do this so in addition to the extreme darkness the depth itself can be a killer at these depths divers use a mix a gas mix called trimix which includes helium nitrogen and oxygen to help combat exposure to high oxygen pressure but all three of these gases can affect the body at these depths and that's kind of the same thing that remember when we were talking about like compression diving Mm-hmm. that they used helium as well mm-hmm. and yeah i was like oh they may almost sound like <laughs> really high voices yeah <laughs> and you suck the air out of a balloon yeah so oxygen apparently can actually become toxic at depth if it's just oxygen um mm-hmm. nitrogen acts like a narcotic and the deeper you go the more drunk you get and at 800 feet, narcosis feels like you've drunk seven martinis on an empty stomach. And that is a quote from these articles. From I the would divers. hate that. See, yeah. this is the thing. I don't even like feeling a little loopy. Like, I drank an IPA and then two glasses of wine last night. And I, you know, I was like a little tipsy. And then I woke up this morning with like awful headache. And I drank... Yeah. I put liquid IVs in my water and then like chugged a bottle of water with that liquid IV in it before I went to bed. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is going to, I know I'm still going to wake up and, like feeling a little bit like shit, but should be a little bit better. I still woke up feeling like shit. <laughs> I was like Advil, yeah. more liquid IV, more water. <laughs> like, <give laughs> Welcome to water. 30. I I'm know. like a fairly functional drunk, I guess, um, based on the experiences that I've had. But I would not want to be diving drunk. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't either. And then like, like I, I'm just saying this out loud. I know I got tummy issues, so I feel like I'd vomit if that was oh. me underwater. 
Oh, we're going to talk about some vomiting. And I have a fear of vomiting and then put me underwater. Mm. And I'm like, how the hell do people vomit underwater? You mean that that's just going through your regulator? Or do you like choke on water? Like what the fuck happens? I never want to experience that. I hope yeah. that's like one. That's another one of my fears. Yeah. <laughs> like irrational fears. It's like the the percentage of that actually happening is probably very very low, but it's never zero, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, and we're gonna talk about some vomiting. Don't you worry. Um, so nar- nitrogen gets you drunk. Uh, helium can give you nervous twitching fits. So you got your uppers and your downers, right? This sounds like a nightmare, honestly. <laughs> This does not sound like a fun time at all. <laughs> no. So, and CO2 is the other thing that you have to worry about because it's created when you breathe and can build up in divers' lungs if they're taking quick, short breaths. Thus, divers breathe slow and deep in order to combat this. So if you don't keep a slow, steady breath at these depths, you can black out from CO2 poisoning and drown if you're not assisted. Um, I would 100% be dead yeah they're like even diving in 25 feet of water my respiration rate is not good like i'm fast breathing yes i use i I use a lot of air when i yeah there's Um, no way so if you ascend too quickly too all of the nitrogen and helium in your tissues can bubble causing the bends which uh, as we said before can result in severe injury and death to avoid the bends, divers must spend hours upon ascent at, from these depths, sitting at their target depths for calculated periods of decompression time in order for the gases to flush out of their bodies, which prompts the diver saying, if you do the depth, you do the time. And that is mm-hmm. 100% true. In this cave, divers have to do decompression stops for so long that many of them wear adult diapers and bring candy bars to eat underwater. Decompression from the bottom can be over 12 hours of time, depending on how many minutes you stay at the bottom. Minutes. See, this is another reason why I would never be a deep diver is my ADD would not allow me that long at a safety stop. (laughs) I would not. I'm so impatient. I like a 15 minute safety stop. It has me like, like my skin crawling. I was like, I need to, I need to move. Yeah. Like cannot do that. I mean, when I do safety stops, I just kind of vibe and enjoy like just chilling and looking around, but like an hour. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Like, can you just like carabine me like to that part of the rope? And then can we play like a game or something? Like, like, like take a nap, take a, quick little yeah nap. <laughs> like underwater checkers like yeah. just whip out a board <laughs> it's a little bit buoyant like <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah 12 hours of decompression stops is it's i can't even wrap my brain around it like that's can't. a lot of that's a lot of rounds of rock paper scissors <laughs> yeah oh my god <laughs> just imagine doing rock paper scissors for like an hour straight like just <laughs> or you could do like miss mary mac yeah just a lot of hand games (laughs) well i mean it is bushman's hole so i'm sorry (laughs) i said leave your mind out of the gutter jillian (laughs) (laughs) hey you said hand games all right (laughs) yeah but you know me i'm innocent (laughs) this is my husband has corrupted me because this is what he does to me when i say things (laughs) okay alex is the same way (laughs) (laughs) all right so moving on 
this cave, put bluntly, is a killer. And the first victim of the story was a 20-year-old named Dion Dreyer. Dion was raised by mother and father Marie and Theo in the town of, oh God, Veringening near Johannesburg, South Africa. (laughs) It's Dutch. Okay. I was like, Jesus, Ver- like, you're pretty Verin- good at announcing things. Verinigening. Anyway, it's near Johannesburg, South Africa. Veringing. Veringing? Veringing. Maybe Veringing. <laughs> V-E-R-E-E-N-I-G-I-N-G. Uh, so anyway, sorry, moving on. <laughs> Jire was an adventurous young man who liked hunting, racing, and motorcycling and fell into cave diving as well. By the time he planned on diving Bushman's Hole, he had logged over 200 dives at the mere age of 20. God, His tragedy begins when he was invited to join a dive party of South Africans over the Christmas holiday, uh, led by Nuno Gomez. Nuno or Nuno was one of the best and first divers on Bushman's Hole and the first diver to sonar scan its depth in 1981. So Dion was very excited about the opportunity to dive with this expert. Yeah. Dreyer's grandfather had just passed and Dion told his father that if he had a choice in how he died, he wanted to go out diving. Hmm. So imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. So Marie, his mother, meanwhile, begged her son not to go on this trip as Bushman's Hole had already taken the life of Eben Layden, who blacked out at 200 feet in 1993. Dion and the divers had been doing a practice dive for a much deeper dive that they planned on going later in the week. All seemed fine as the team began ascending to the surface at 196 feet where Dion had been exchanging signals with his dive partner and seemed coherent and fine. Then at 164 feet, the dive buddy noticed one light below them and that light wasn't moving. And they realized then that there were one diver short. Oh man. The light below was Dion. No one really knows what killed Dion, but experts guess that he blacked out from a carbon dioxide buildup in his lungs. Oh, God. As is the case with a lot of cave diving, Dion's body was left in the cave as a final resting place, as retrieving bodies from caves is often too dangerous to attempt. Dion's parents were informed of his death and devastated. They placed a commemorative plaque on a rock above the pool. And Theo said of his son's final resting place, he has... He had the most majestic grave in the country. Mm, Yeah. While Dion remained in the cave, diving continued for the next decade with no one coming across his body at that time because that's how big and deep the cave is. Yeah. Gosh, that's crazy. Yeah. That's so So, scary. So, like, he was, like, moving for, like, 30 feet and then mm -hmm. he died? Yeah. And was already sinking, I guess, before they could even get to the body to to bring it back up gosh that's sad yeah so that's like the first tragedy that happens in this cave in this story Mm -hmm. let's move on to the next part of our story here so it was years later that dion dryer's remains were finally encountered in 2004 so that's a 
about 10 years after the accident happened. Yeah. Two cave divers, Dave Shaw and Don Shirley, were exploring the cave together. And if I mix up anybody's names, it's because they're all D names. Yeah, I was just about to make a comment on that. I was like, wow, we got Dion, tongue twisters. We got Dave and Don. And it's Dave Shaw and Don Shirley. So they even have the same last, last name. letter initial. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was and screwing when- me up the whole time I was writing <laughs> Well, and down here, there's, like, um, a chicken restaurant that's attached to some of the gas stations. It's called Dion's Chicken. So every time you say Dion, it makes me think of fried chicken. And I'm just, like, <laughs> it's really throwing me for a loop mentally as well. Yeah. <laughs> you're, like, this tragedy. And you're, like, mm, but fried mm, chicken, though. Yeah, I know. It's so bad. Like fried chicken um, all right. So let's talk about Dave and Dawn. Uh, Dave was an Australian airline pilot who found his love of diving in 1999 on vacation in the Philippines and quickly advanced to cave diving. Don grew up in Surrey, England, and was an electronic specialist in the Army, but moved to South Africa in 1997 to start a new life as a technical diving trainer. So, in fact, he had met Dave at this his dive center and the two men became fast friends and set several deep dive records together in Kamati Springs, South Africa. On this dive in Bushman's, Dave joined the few divers who had reached the bottom of the cave. And upon getting to the bottom of the cave, his flashlight beam caught the remains of Dion. Oh, so quick question, because uh-huh. one that's creepy too is it cold enough down there that his remains were like preserved pretty well or was he like a gross skeleton well let's let's talk about that but you're on the right track oh is he yeah. a soap man oh <laughs> i'm guessing they before they happen all right so the remains were still in a wetsuit wearing a cylinder and dave thought the remains might be skeletal because he could see the head and the head looked skeletal yeah At the time, Dave tried to move the body, but the body was stuck in the silt and mud at the bottom of the cave, and Dave began panting, which if you remember... You're not supposed to breathe fast. ...is a no-no, right? So Dave decided to make the smart choice and leave the body as overworking at the steps could be fatal. So he tied the shot line that they had to Dion's dive tank so that Dion could be found again. Mm-hmm. Upon ascending at 400 feet, he wrote to Don on his underwater slate, um, saying 270 meters found body. After a very long decompression period, um, Dave surfaced, removed his mask and said to Don, I want to try to take him out. Man, that's like really nice of you. But it's like that first responder thought where it's like, yes. Like, think about your own life, too. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. And and there's been a lot of discourse, I think, in the cave diving, diving community about this incident. Because, like, on one hand, you have this, like, like brotherly feeling towards your fellow cave diver or sisterly, whatever. Yeah. And so you want to retrieve them because you'd want people maybe to do that for you. But at the same time, it's like, it's like the whole bodies on Everest thing. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like you have to think about your own life too. Like, yeah, you know, are you, like, 
they're already deceased, which right. I don't know, maybe I sound like an asshole saying this, but like, and they already made like a memorial for him, right? Mm-hmm. At the cave. So there's like the plaque and whatnot, like that's his grave. So it's also mm-hmm. kind of like disturbing the dead. Like, are you going to dig up someone's gravesite and move them to somewhere else? Right. Like, <laughs> Me so. personally, I understand a lot of cultures have a significance to actually being able to bury somebody. Of course. Yeah. I completely understand that too. I just, that's a hard call to make. But like, if it was me, I'd be like, leave me down there because I personally don't have any cultural, like I want to be cremated. You know what I mean? Like I don't need a a grave, you know, marker or anything. Yeah. Like let it be known if I die somewhere where no one can reach me unless it's like, or they, or if they could reach me, it's like very unsafe. Just just leave me. It's yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> just, I don't, I don't want... want you. Guys, I don't want you guys dying trying to get me. It's fine. Right. Right. So, but you know, everybody has their own opinions on it too. And I think that's part of it for sure. Yeah. Definitely a hard call to make for sure. Yeah. So Dave called up Theo Dreyer on October 20th, 2004, telling him that he had found his son and he wanted to retrieve Dion's body. I was just thinking about where I was in 2004. I was in middle school. <laughs> I was going to, is it bad that like, I, I try to remember what grade I was in based off of like the, like after school party of the year. Like, you know, we always got like, <laughs> we always got these like, you know, year sunglasses like they did yeah. for like New Year's and stuff. Yeah. So I'm always like, and I went to Catholic school all up until high school. Uh, so for me, I'm like a lot of my years were spent at Catholic school. So I'm like, what grade was I in? Because in my brain, I w- I'm at that school. I just don't know what grade I was. Oh, because you went to the mm. same school. Mm-hmm. See, I yeah, moved yeah. all over the place. So I, I definitely know I was, I think it was in Colorado in 2004. It's pretty yeah. sure. Yeah. I um, That school went from pre-K to eighth grade. And I started going there in third grade. And a lot of the times I think what I would be like if I was there since pre-K, because I'm already pretty ruined from it. I'm just like, <laughs> Jesus. Imagine if I went there from pre-K to eighth grade. That'd be even worse. Meanwhile, there's me who I was in different schools for sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Yeah. Completely different schools. At least you know how to make friends easy. Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I just went on a tangent because I thought it was 2004 and I was like where was I because I'm yeah. a narcissist apparently I'm sorry no you're not a narcissist that's a long time ago though that's almost 10 20 years ago it is I can't do math don't almost 20 years ago Jesus yeah we're old <laughs> we're old as shit huh all right Imagine all right that. let's get back to this tragedy yeah all right so Don Shirley spoke on Dave's determination. Dave felt very connected to Dion. He had found him, so it was like a personal thing that he should bring him back. Ah, uh, yes. The the no one has found him to bring him back, and I was the first one to find him, so I must bring him back. Thought. Yeah. So the feat would also make this the deepest body recovery ever done. They yes. were able to do this because of the closed circuit rebreather which was a much more efficient method of diving in these caves. However, they do require constant monitoring of gas level settings, which is monitored by an expensive dive computer. This will come back later. Okay. Dive computer is helpful. 
Yeah. Um, the dive, this dive, however, because of how dangerous the technical it was, would take a year to plan. Forensic experts guessed that the corpse would be mostly bone and that it might be easier to get up in a body bag instead of just bringing the body as body mm-hmm. parts might fall off. Uh, mm. Dave created a body bag that would work for diving and Dave and Dion decided to have a team of support divers in the water to check on Dave at various depths as he came up with Dawn being the deepest uh, diving support. Days before the dive, they practiced working with the body bag underwater with Dawn playing the part of Dion's body. And it went well, but they were only in 66 feet, which I can dive to 66 feet. Yeah, so, I think the deepest I dove was 100. Yeah. So Anne, who was Dave's wife, uh, was very concerned about the dangers of the dive and asked to be called as soon as Dave came up from the dive. Dave okay. purposely told her the planned dive was going to happen the day after it was actually planned to happen. So he could just tell her it was over early without having her reach like peak stress levels. Uh-huh. But if he didn't come up, he arranged for somebody to call her. E. Which I don't like because you're going about your day you're worried about the dive your husband's gonna go on the next day but you're just yeah. going about your day and then all of a sudden you get this call I, yeah I don't know that's, that's, that's kind of yeah because he he wanted to just so he's pretty much saying like oh yeah the dive went fine before he does the dive right yeah yeah and then like oh god that that fucks her up mentally yeah she's like okay he's all safe and then she gets a call and she's like what yeah and then you want to be angry at him because you're like you fucking lied to me but then you're like, you did. Yeah. Oh, God. That's, yeah. that's, a, that's a mental mess for sure. It really is. Yeah. So dive doctor um, and specialist Jack Menentes uh, almost backed out of the effort because there were nine divers in the water saying there are too many potential bodies. You are dealing with multiple divers going deep and that's serious. In addition, a documentary filmmaker, Gordon Hiles, wanted Dave to wear a lightweight camera to film the body recovery. Hmm. Dave practiced a dive down to 500 feet with the camera to make sure it wouldn't affect his performance. The night before the dive, Dave told the team, the most important person on this dive is you. If you have a problem, deal with your problem and forget about me. It's better to have one person dead than two, which could be said about this whole effort, but yeah, that's just me. Uh, Don privately asked Dave if he wanted Don to come down if he was having issues, to which Dave said, yes, but only come down if I signal. So J- Don was the only one who was allowed to, to rescue Dave, basically. Gotcha. So the dive commenced at 4 a.m. on January 8th, 2005. Besides the support divers, paramedics, police, and the media crowded on the rocky trail down to the pool. So this was like a very televised thing. Mm-hmm. Theo and Marie Dreyer were there as well, but they came in after Dave had entered the water. So he wouldn't feel any pressure to bring their son back, which gotcha. was a good call. Yeah. Um, they knew that kind of pressure could kill someone doing this kind of dive. Mm-hmm. Dave descended quickly, hitting the bottom at 11 minutes. 
and Don followed 13 minutes later, waiting at 725 feet for his friend. 20 minutes later, Dave should have been ascending, but he wasn't. Oh, no. Don saw Dave's light in the crystal clear water below him, similar to the diver mm-hmm. seeing Dion's light, right? Um, but it wasn't moving. A sure sign of a potential dead diver at these depths. And to make matters worse, there were no bubbles coming up. Oh, God. Dave was Don's good friend, and so he decided to try to go down to him. But at 800 feet, his rebreather controller exploded <gasps> the pressure. What? So, so what happened this, to him? This left him unable to monitor his gas mixture. Remember oh, I said God. that they used the oh. dive computer to do that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So Don knew it was time to turn around and head for the surface without Dave or Dion. Otherwise, he knew he would mm-hmm. join them. Yeah. Oh, God, that stinks. At this point, he still had 10 hours in the water ahead of him before he could safely surface. Oh, God. He caught one of the support divers at 400 feet, relaying the message on a dive site saying, Dave not coming back, which was quickly relayed to the surface via a system of pulleys that they had created so they could send messages like up and down. Jeez, that's really sad. So he now is uh, fighting for his life, essentially. Yeah. So the game soon changed from a body recovery to a rescue effort. As Dave began to ascend, he began to pass out and got a helium bubble in his ear, Mm. which caused him to lose balance and equilibrium immediately. Oh, no. This happened to my, um, I don't know if it was a helium bubble, but she got a bubble in her ear, my mother-in-law. Oh, really? And she had crazy bad vertigo for a long time. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. So, okay. Also about vertigo, though. I learned this because Alex's dad had this happen to him recently. Mm -hmm. There's like little crystals in your ear Mm -hmm. where if they pop out of those, like, and like, that's, that's pretty much what happened to him. So he had, like, you can fix it though with physical therapy. It's like just a handful of physical therapy sessions about like sitting, it's like sitting up really fast, like turning your head back and forth or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then they like fall back into place and then like your vertigo is gone. Yeah. Like, that's wild. Yeah. You have little crystals in your ear. Yeah. <laughs> all kinds of cool stuff in your ear, but a lot of stuff that can make it go wrong. Like, I don't know yeah. if I've talked about this on the podcast or really talked about this with my parents, which maybe I should. But uh, so when I was getting, I was doing a dive with Corey. It was the first dive we ever did together at depth. Mm-hmm. So we used to dive at the aquarium all the time, but I mean, that was nothing. Yeah, but um, we were because we were trying to go to Maui, so we wanted to like get a dive under, like kind of a recertification dive kind of deal. Yeah, and um, I had, I I went down too quickly because I felt pressured by the dive instructor to meet up with everybody else, mm. and I I didn't like burst my eardrum, but I did uh cause really some barotrauma and swelling and like my ear was bleeding when I came back up and I was on steroids for a month uh to fix it and I it 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 was like a pressure in your ear like for a month and you felt like you were underwater it was so I'm very very careful about my ears now yeah no kidding because of that and I'm already pretty sensitive 
with my ears as it is yeah more than other people when I um when I was diving a couple years ago down here I my tooth like one of my molars felt like it was about to burst out of my face yeah and I like resurfaced after the first dive just like dear god like that really hurts like I don't I don't think I want to be like messing with that like it literally feels like I might pop a tooth out of my Mm -hmm. my gum line and come to find out after I think I got um it was when I got went to the dentist for like whatever annual six months checkup whatever and they do x-rays come to find out like the roots of my teeth back there go into my sinus cavity oh good oh it's like if you know the sinus pressure that you feel when you're diving like Mm -hmm. that like went to my tooth and that's why I and that's why I was feeling that and I was like oh I don't I like I don't like that at all like that's yeah fun feeling yeah and the ears and stuff like even Mm -hmm. when I'm like on the water with Alex and like we're like kayak fishing or like when I get in the water and like dive down a bit to like just play around like mm-hmm. the the sinus pressure of like trying to equalize and like your ears get plugged up and like mm-hmm. they, you can't equalize them oh I hate that feeling yeah I have I you can definitely like my hearing hasn't been affected by that or anything which is my biggest concern yeah um but when I go on planes it's always much harder to equalize this ear than it is to equalize this because it was only one ear that was impacted yeah um, yeah, so I'm very careful about that now and I've definitely set limits for myself with diving because like I don't I don't want to hurt myself and no, it's and, like, so you easy to hurt pressure. yourself. Yeah, yeah, and you shouldn't feel pressure from like your dive instructor. Like your right. dive instructor should be like the one that's trying to keep you safe. Exactly, exactly. And I I so I just have sensitive ears, always have. Um, so I've always had problems equalizing. It just takes me longer and mm-hmm. so I, but I also am a people pleaser. So, <laughs> yep. No so I felt that. the need to go down because I wanted to dive too. And I didn't want everyone to wait for me. And, you know, mm-hmm. so, so now I'm just like, fuck everyone else. I'm going to equalize my ears and you can do whatever you want to. <laughs> yep. So, yep. so that's just an example of like how dangerous this can be, even in the hundred feet by the surface. That's that's all we were at was like I think we we're only going out at like seventy that day. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like like this. So anyway, vertigo, vertigo. So he had vertigo. <laughs> yeah, we were at vertigo. Yeah, <laughs> it's like where were we at? Vertigo. That's where vertigo. we were at. Uh, so because he lost balance and equilibrium, it made him lose the shot line. Oh God! So he was just spinning around in the blackness, trying to find the line again, which he oh, did. Oh, that's so scary! So he managed to find it again with his flashlight, but now had vertigo and began vomiting underwater at like four hundred feet. Fuck that! Yeah, I can't. Ugh. No, nothing. Which, you. when you're thinking about vomiting, like if you take your regulator out and you suck in, you could drown. So yes, yeah. he's vomiting through his regulator, basically. Ugh. Ugh, that's awful. It's disgusting. Yeah. So all of these problems were likely coming from the fact that he was manually adjusting his gas mixture now due to the controller being broken. So he's kind of having to guess a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And because he was confused and ascending too fast. So all of these things were kind of compounding 
mm-hmm. into this. So by the time Don had managed to make it to the next group of support divers, he was five hours late. Jesus. He scrabbled the message on the board. I'm having a bad time. Which <laughs> Sounds about right. I've got vertigo and I'm vomiting. And I know I'm having a bad time like in British is a bit of a more serious or like British slang is a bit of a more mm-hmm. serious thing. But to us, we're just like, I'm having a bad time, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> it's like not, not fun, <laughs> but that's like an emergency. Yes. So the dive manager began sending down divers to wait with him throughout his entire ascent with new instructions to manage his gas mixture and decompression time. So somebody who was thinking clearly was giving him mm-hmm. directions at this point, which is good. So like if that guy was like helping him manage his gas mixture, like did he get better over time then? Yeah. Or did he just like suffer through it all the way back up? Yeah. Both? <laughs> yes. I wouldn't say he got better, but he definitely like the symptoms stopped getting worse. Like he stabilized in in a bad time. Yeah. So, but each movement he made brought back a new round of vomiting, which at this point was just dry heaving because he had nothing left, Oh, which is the worst. Yeah. If you've ever dry heaved, which I I have numerous times. it I dry heave every time I have to like brush my tongue. Really? (laughs) (laughs) I cannot brush my tongue without gagging. I'm like, like, not a fun time. Yeah, but it takes, like, when you're doing it for a long time, it takes so much out of you. It's exhausting. Yeah, it is really exhausting. Um, so Don, despite this, repeated to himself, I will survive. I will survive. And suck, hold, exhale. Suck, hold, exhale. He had to, like, physically tell himself mm-hmm. to breathe at this point. Yeah, the fight to survive. Yeah. So now he was just 20 feet below the surface, approaching hypothermia. Um, but he had to stay there for two hours, God. 20 people on the surface for two hours. He had been at the ascent for eight hours up until this point, And then the last level was 10 feet and he started feeling pain in his left leg. No. Oh right. my God. Uh, Which was a signal that the bends were impacting the rest of his body. Yeah. And he had another two hour rest stop. So after two more hours, he was finally brought out of the hole and put in a recompression chamber only 22 minutes later. Thank God. I was going to say, get him out and just put him right in a decompression chamber. Yeah. He had endured Bushman's hole for 12 and a half hours. Jesus. Theo and Marie left the cave upon hearing the news of Dave's death. Devastated that the body recovery effort had taken another life. Like, can you even imagine being those poor parents? Oh my God. At this point, after the disastrous attempt at body recovery, most of the dive team went home, but support diver, Peter Herbst, a South African friend and a friend of Don's stayed for the memorial service. He also dove the cave again with a police diver, Gert Nell, to remove whatever gear they could. It was at only 65 feet below the surface that Nell saw Dion and Dave's bodies stuck to the roof of the cave where it had begun to narrow towards the surface. Hmm. So 
because Dion was attached to Dave and Dave's body had swollen up floating, it brought both bodies to the top of the cave. Oh, wow. In the following days, Herbst and the police officer or police worked to retrieve the two bodies from this much more manageable depth. Dion was retrieved first and was found to be headless. <gasps> yep. So from head, the shrimp that are just what like what his head fell off because How? his body is oh, we'll get to it we'll get to it oh my god yeah, yeah. so his head is still down there oh yep. god <laughs> yep yep uh so they retrieved Dion first um, but Dave's was much harder as he had swollen and locked in rigor mortis. So he had to be cut out of his equipment to be removed from the cave. Because if you remember, it's that very narrow passage that only you can get your body through. So they had to kind of wiggle somebody with rigor mortis through that. It's lovely. It's a lovely thought. So... Because Dave had been carrying a camera down with him for the documentary, they were able to see what happened to Dave because it was on the whole time he was down oh there. Oh my God. Seriously? Yeah. And I I don't know if you can find this footage online. I would not recommend it. I did not try to find it because to me, that's a like a snuff film, right? Yeah. But we do know what happened to him. And we do know why Dion is headless. Why? Why? All right. Why? So do I want to know. I don't. I don't know if I want to know. <laughs> too bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the footage is dark and somewhat difficult to see, but it does show Dave's final moments. Upon reaching Dion's body at twelve minutes into the dive, he pulls out the body bag and begins to try to put Dion into it. As he does, the silt stirs up, blocking his visuals. But as soon as it's clear, Dion's head has fallen off and is floating along with the rest of his body in front of Dave. So, <gasps> Oh, God, that's so scary. You know, when you're decomposing, parts of your body just aren't connected as well oh. as they are while you're alive. And so essentially, the movement of the body just knocked the head off. Ugh. Yeah. So... Turns out that Dion's body was not skeletal, as predicted, but mummified adipocere, similar to old Whitey, who we talked about in the last episode. Ugh. So you were right about that. Ugh. Ugh. I don't like being right about that. <laughs> You're getting good at guessing this stuff, though. <laughs> I just, I don't like that that's where my brain goes now. I'm sorry. You agreed to do this with me. I did. I know. So again, for everybody who, if you haven't listened to the last episode, adipocere is also known as corpse wax and is formed by the anaerobic bacterial hydrolysis of fat, which replaces body fat with a firm cast of fatty tissues and essentially is a waxy soap-like substance. This happens often to bodies in cold water that has low bacterial levels and little decomposition. In the video... And because he's out of pisser, he floats a lot better than mm -hmm. like a skeletonized body would. So in the video, Dave begins breathing faster as he is not expecting to wrestle with a floating body. And in the next two minutes, it becomes obvious that Dave is succumbing to narcosis 
from the nitrogen as he begins hyperventilating. The cave line is floating around everywhere, snagging on Dave's gear, and Dave is letting the gear float loose, which is kind of a sign that he's not in his right mind. Mm -hmm. Around the four-minute mark, his movements become confused and undirected. After watching the video, Don Shirley said he found himself saying, despite knowing what ultimately happened, leave it, leave it, leave the body now. It's loose and can come up. But it's thought that the narcosis is so great that Dave hyper-focuses on what he's come to do, which is retrieve Dion's body and can think of nothing else. Eventually, at the five-minute mark, he tries to swim towards the surface, but his light has snagged on the line tied to Dion's tanks. And it's here he takes his last breaths. Dave dies much the same way Dion might have from too much carbon dioxide. Mm. Don says of watching the experience, it was like some sort of snuff tape, you know. It's actually, as Dave reaches his last breaths, you know it. It was really gut-wrenching, very sad. And you know it's not something you really want to listen to. Yeah. Uh, but he did say that Dave very much did die nobly doing what he did. He did everything that he should do, and he died, as they say in the military, with his boots on. Oh, God, that's just so sad, though. I know. It's very graphic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could not imagine watching that video. I Like, that's why I was like, I would not be surprised if the footage was floating around there somewhere, like somebody got a hold of it. Yeah. You know how people like in the 2000s like would put videos of people getting their heads like decapitated and stuff online? No, I actually don't know that. Oh. Why would you know that? <laughs> because, oh, well, I never watched, but you know, it's all these dumb middle school boys were like, oh my God, you got to see this video of this guy who gets beheaded by the Taliban. It's like, what the fuck? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> And this was around this time period, right? Like Ugh, these videos yeah. were just floating around the internet and people had, everyone had access to them if they really wanted to go look at it. Mm-hmm. And yucky, it's not, it's really fucking disturbing. Yeah. That people would want to watch this. I understand why, you know, the divers watched this so that they could know what happened. Because how could you not, first of all? But it's their friend, right? They kind of owe it to him. Yeah. To know what his final... And I I couldn't... That'd be so difficult. But to the people who go out looking for these kind of things, you're fucked up. Don't do that. That's not good. It's not healthy. So Don did not walk away without injuries, however. Uh, It took him seven hours to initially leave the decompression chamber and he was weak and barely able to stand. Over the next two weeks, he had 10 more pressure chamber treatments, and it was a month before he could think clearly and walk in crowded areas without getting dizzy and disoriented. Yeah, Yeah, that's trauma right there. Andre Shirley, who is Don's wife, said upon seeing him, he could not walk without support, and his thinking patterns had been affected. He would sound sane, but two minutes later, he'd forget what he had said, um, which is kind of similar to like a traumatic brain injury almost. Mm -hmm. It's like a very similar uh, like symptom, I guess. He has improved over time, but the helium bubble left him with permanent hearing damage and has impaired his balance. 
But of course, in May of 2005, he went diving again for the first time after his ordeal with Peter Herbst and found that he was still able to do what he loved, stating a cave is a place where I live, mm-hmm. which, I mean, live, live your best life, I guess. <laughs> I mean, if that's what you love to do, you're going to keep find a way to keep doing it. So uh, Nuno true. or Numo Gomez, who is the last person alive now who has dove to the bottom of Bushman's hole stated of Dave Shaw's experience. You don't think of a new plan while you are down there. It doesn't work. Your mind mm-hmm. is clouded. You cannot do it. Just talking about like the narcosis and stuff. So yeah. that's why he was so like singularly driven. Marie and Theo went to see their son before the burial relieved that he was still a somewhat fleshed out body, even though the head was missing Marie cradled the body in her arms. Anne Shaw says of her husband, acknowledging her anger and loss, fighting herself, thinking he needed to dive, and I accepted that. I wasn't about to change him or tie him down. She has spread Dave's ashes in South Africa. Bushman's Hole represents what is at the absolute limits of human ability when it comes to cave diving. It is a veritable Everest that draws in cave divers, especially those hoping to set records or see the silty bottom of this absolutely huge cave. But like Everest, it has collected bodies and like Everest, it is extremely difficult to retrieve them. But Dave Shaw did what he set out to do, even though it claimed his life. He did retrieve the body of Dion Dreyer. In a cruel twist of fate, Dave's body being attached to Dion's was what ultimately brought him back up to the surface of the cave. And now his family is finally able to put him to rest. But the dark waters of the cave wait and Bushman's Hole will continue to call those who seek its depths regardless of the danger. Wow. What a story. That's the story of Bushman's Hole. And like, I don't agree that they should have done it but that doesn't make dave's death any more or any less like tragic yeah no that's definitely a really tragic story it's and the fact that they have dave's death yeah like on video like that's oh god i know because it could have been been three bodies i know know? like and and don you know made the decision to pull out you know yeah whereas dave didn't and that's yeah, but Dave didn't probably be like you said because he was yeah. not in the right mind and fixated on yeah like some because I mean think about it like when like they're like oh there's not you can't just make up a back backup plan down there yeah. or whatever it's like when you start getting it like not in your right mind you're like this is what I was doing like you know just to keep your mind straight like yeah. whatever like and you, then like you said you get fixated on it and then yeah. it's like. I mean, I've hyper-focused with a completely sober mind, so I I get it. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Yeah. And that's something that you're like, I have to absolutely, because you've poured so much time and money into it at that point. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. So I, it's just, it's a tough one, but it, I think that that story is, needs to be told, you know, that for sure. I think it's a very, first of all, it's just a fascinating cave system, like just trying to grasp the size of it alone yeah. is, is interesting. But I mean, you know, what happens when you accidentally record your death kind of thing? Like, 
it's I don't know it's it's an it's a it's fucked up but it's it's a story that I think needs to be told right yeah I'm adding in this picture on your Google Doc before the time runs out so you can okay. see what what my face looks like when you're telling this story. Oh my god. I was like I looked up and you're just reading and I looked at my face and I was like this is just a really great example of what. <laughs> Cuz I'm like, yep, yep, that happened. Yeah. yeah I'm like, just like like what the fuck? Why are you why are we doing this podcast? Why are you so doing just- this to me? so disgusted <laughs> and I don't think you ever really get to see my facial expressions because you're always reading I do there's one point where you were just sitting here like this like, <laughs> hands like over face holding my head like, this like, is not oh my goodness yeah that's that'll go on Instagram page for <laughs> sure that's hilarious but yeah it's it's oh it's one of the ones that really freaks me out about cave diving for sure yeah yeah stayed so myself as well yeah um and it's like a a double whammy because you got Dion and Dave dying because of this cave yeah it's so sad yeah excuse me um let me do my sources real quick all right so I really only had two because they were very thorough um Mm -hmm. one is where no one should go uh it was an interview um of Don Shirley by Glenn Washington and Julia DeWitt from NPR and Raising the Dead by Tim Zimmerman from Outside Magazine which is one of my favorite uh magazines to get articles from for these stories because they're so thorough Mm -hmm. um outside there's there's a lot of them anyway so uh that's all I have cool nice do you got a conservation corner I do, um, and it's not a bird this time. <laughs> I was like, she I, I mentally took a note, and I was like, I cannot do a bird. I cannot do a bird. But in South Africa, there are these really cool birds, the blue crane. They look really cool. And I was like, ooh. But then I was like, I can't do them. You can not- if you want. Let's we'll just call no. it bird corner. At this no, <laughs> Just rebrand it real quick. No, I picked a frog. Oh. Okay. <laughs> My next favorite animal. <laughs> <laughs> um so i the pickers gill reed frog have you heard of that frog Ooh. is it the one that scream like this little squeakies I, I don't know what they sound like honestly all right um, what is it called again i'm gonna look it up pickers gill it's one word p-i-c-k-e-r-s-g-i-l-l wow. i got it okay no i have not heard of these i am on amphibians.org Okay. And they are critically endangered according to the IUCN red list of threatened mm-hmm. species. Oh my god, and they're so tiny. They're teeny. Ooh. They're um they're super small. They measure up to 30 millimeters, oh so a little god. over 1 inch um and females. Yeah. They're literally so small that they like fit like lengthwise on the width of a piece of grass like a blade of grass yeah they're they're like the size of a fingernail like yeah their habitat mainly occurs in the indian ocean coastal belt vegetation group two according to wikipedia at elevations up to 380 meters above sea level so that's about 1250 feet it requires perennial wetlands that have 
Very dense reed beds. The habitat type is highly endangered and poorly protected. Uh, the species occurs in the Isamangaliso Wetland Park, Umlalazi Natural Nature Reserve, and then the Ungoi Forest Reserve, and Twin Streams Twin Streams mm-hmm. Manzini Natural Heritage Site. Um, so yeah, they're I very guess. endemic. Like I'm looking yeah. at a range map right now, and it's literally only on like the north. I guess that'd be eastern coast of South Africa. Mm-hmm. Like that's it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So adult males grow to usually no more than 22 millimeters, whereas adult females can approach 30 millimeters. So like you cool. said, they're like yeah, they're so small they fit on a blade of grass. How mm-hmm. cute! Snout is acutely pointed, and the tie. Uh, it's a. Uh- Cutely pointed. It's a cutely pointed. Yes. Sorry. Um, phantom, typhanum. What's you probably know that word? It's no. the ex- external hearing structure in animals such as mammals, birds, some reptiles, some amphibians, and some insects. Bruh, that- I'm a fish biologist, <laughs> <laughs> but you're smart. <laughs> if we want to talk ears, we're talking otoliths and nothing yeah, else. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Give me a otolith. I definitely know how to take one of those out and yep. age them. <laughs> So this like monotonous work back in the Vince days. <laughs> Remember when we had like our like our work line set up and it was like somebody cut them and then you pass it over to the person that was sanding them and then you pass it over to the person that would read them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we just blasted Pandora in the, the lab the whole yep. day. <laughs> That's actually where I got started listening to true crime podcasts. So oh, yeah, it's I really the that. otoliths that have brought me to yeah this, this podcast <laughs> and whoever wasn't in the otolith line was on the computer looking at the catfish eggs measuring them and yep. fixing that whole excel sheet <laughs> yep oh god the life of the fisheries tech it's a it's yeah. a rough one good times <laughs> so anyway. yeah the, the hearing structure is hidden the toes are webbed like you know frogs are Two color phases, juveniles and males are dorsally light to dark brown. There's a dark edged white to silver canthal stripe, which that canthal in snakes and amphibians, the canthus or the canthal ridge, is the angle between the flat crown of the head and the side of the head between the eye and the snout. So that stripe passes around the snout over the eyes and then continues dorsolaterally to the groin. Females change to the female color phase at a length of 20 to 22 millimeters and the dorsum becomes green eventually light to yellowish green whereas the dorsolateral stripes become indistinct and eventually disappear okay i see the two color morphs Mm -hmm. oh my god there's this picture of this little juvenile frog uh or picker scale frog (laughs) and he's so cute sorry okay keep going oh no you're good it was just pretty much the end of the color phases so, yeah. um, so why, other than the fact that they're like extremely endemic, why are they endangered? Is that like habitat loss? Or? It's yeah, it's the habitat loss, and um, just yeah, it's mainly habitat loss. That's really gotcha. what it is. All right. Well, I will post pictures of these little cuties online, and I do want to kind of add to. Um, I think we're losing amphibian species at a rate far faster than like any other kind of like animal on the planet yeah um, as far as like extinction goes because a lot of these guys they can't really travel to new habitats very well 
Um, a lot of them are very specific, like this little guy to like specific regions of the world. And there's a lot of like fungal infections that are happening now, I think because of like warming climate, essentially, you know, it's just a better temperature from, for these fungal diseases to thrive. And that's something we see in fish and marine species as well. Mm-hmm. Um, actually one of the diseases I studied with the shrimp, um, based on our modeling, uh, it's temperature that really brings out the uh, disease. So yeah, <laughs> it's a pretty common thing. Yeah. But. So on uh, sandbee.org, it says that the species threatened primarily by habitat loss, like we just said. And then um, that habitat loss is due to mining and agriculture development. Yep. So that's what that's from. Plus, I'm uh, sure things like coastal erosion probably don't help. Yeah. Them. So this also says that they're found like I think they said like 16 kilometers from the coastline. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if you're losing coastline and then it keeps encroaching onto their habitat too, that's probably. Well, and then you have maybe the added problem here. Like here, sometimes we have like saltwater intrusion during droughts. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, if we're taking all the fresh water out for water usage for agriculture and stuff, our estuaries get uh, with high, higher salinity. And so that would limit, especially within 16 miles of the coast, you're primarily in a freshwater habitat. You're dealing mm-hmm. with saltwater intrusion. Could just lose your habitat, basically. Yeah. So that's interesting you said that because I was listening to the news the other morning and all my news is Good Morning America. So take that how you will. Um, but they were on <laughs> Easter Island uh-huh. and. Um, so fun fact, I learned this, those like s- large stone heads, s- structures, sculptures, whatever yeah. on Easter Island, they actually mark where the source of fresh water is for them. Oh. And yeah, so I thought this was really interesting. So they mark where the source of fresh water is for them. And the bigger the head, the more water that's there. Huh. But because of climate change and coastal erosion, salt water is starting to get into their freshwater sources Mm -hmm. and it's causing a problem Mm -hmm. so and then like how they move the heads around the island is they take like it's pretty much like they they quote unquote walk the the heads around the island Mm -hmm. and how they do that is it's like you know with tug of war like you have two groups of people on each end of the rope and they're tugging back and forth so it's similar but like in the middle is the Easter Island Stonehead. Mm-hmm. And so it's like one one group of people pulling on a rope has like looped it around the top of the head. Mm-hmm. And then another the other group of people pulling on the other side looped their end onto the top of the head. So they're pretty much just like yanking it back and forth. So it tips on to oh, its, so it's like, like a corner. So it's like wobbling walking. That's wild. So, so that's how they like quote unquote walk it around so that they can move them to other uh sources of water but yeah so that's that's the whole answer to the east island has is that marks sources of fresh water for them i didn't know that i i thought i i thought we didn't really know but because a lot of the folks on rapa nui like got you know died due to like colonization slavery that yeah i thought we didn't yeah i thought we didn't know either and then when i was watching the news like they were doing interviews with like locals and stuff and so like that's I was like, oh, wow. Like, and then apparently I didn't read any of these like scientific articles, but then there was also like an archaeologist or some sort of like ist on the, um, 
the the show to being interviewed and he said that like you know science and then also like these like verbal storytelling like mm-hmm. traditions like they both confirm that that's how they they like moved um those things around those had mm-hmm. the stone heads around and I was I thought that was really cool so. turns out if you just ask the locals you'll get the answer I know instead right? of speculating with western you know perspective <laughs> Yeah, it was super cool, though. I was like, that makes a lot of sense why they would like. And then so the reason why their heads is um, they're like carved from, I guess, ancestors or like, quote unquote, yeah. gods or whatever, like their belief is, because that's like and they that's like their protector. Right. And then like they all face inward towards the island. Mm-hmm. So they're all like the the quote unquote first line of defense and protecting the island. That's cool. Yeah. So they're they're just like serve a dual purpose, like a practical one and and a religious one. That's pretty Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Well, things I didn't know about Easter Island and the picker Picker's Gill breed frog. Oh my god, they're so cute. They're so tiny. Yeah, so then on here, this is what made me think of it because I saw like the the water stuff. Um so the ecological from like the ecological perspective, you know, obviously amphibians are regarded as good ecological indicators because frogs drink through their skin so like they're susceptible to man-made changes to the environment if Mm -hmm. they don't have the water source then they're obviously like it's not there's no water source it's not good environment for people to be in right yeah so uh due to the high degree of sensitivity of habitat requirements by the pickers gills reed frog they will respond to very slight changes in the environment and such responses have and can be used to indicate poor habitat quality habitat fragmentation ecosystem stress pollution mm-hmm. and various anthropogenic activities that would affect other species as well so they're an indicator species a mm-hmm. canary in the coal mine if you will mm-hmm. yeah. yeah literally i guess because <laughs> yeah. there's mining going on too yeah yeah well so it just goes to show you that like world wildlife fund is all about pandas and the polar bears and the big charismatic animals but some of these smaller guys, a lot of these smaller, less known species are the ones that really need the most help. And mm-hmm. a lot of them are like, you know, keystone species in an ecosystem. So, yeah. All right. Well, thanks for, for sharing with us a non-bird. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> first non-bird of the podcast. <laughs> Sorry about you that. You can like space it out. Do a bird, then do a non-bird, then do a bird, then do a non-bird. <laughs> Yeah, I just, I didn't realize I was doing all birds. I was like, this looks cool. But clearly I like my birds. All right, well, let's uh, finish off with happy things so we can stop thinking about bodies in a cave. Yeah, that sounds great. Happy thing, uh, we went fishing yesterday and I caught a big ass permit. I saw. That was awesome. Yeah, that's the biggest permit I've seen since I worked at the aquarium. Yeah, it was so we we were trying for tarpon and um we were at this spot and we didn't really get tarpon obviously and so we were going to turn around and leave and as we were leaving the guide is like oh that's actually like a school of permit over there like let's check that out yeah and then like as we stayed there probably for 40 minutes i shit you not it was the largest okay and this is coming from me who's not an angler like an avid angler at least and i don't fish a lot in the florida keys like to the point where i would know things like permit population dynamics so take this with a grain of salt but it was the largest school of permit i've ever seen <laughs> like, <laughs> like i like it was i don't know it was so big that it's like the like you could see the change into the, like the flat 
onto our left. And then like, you can see like, you know, deeper watercolor Mm -hmm. to our right. And I'm not good with distances either, but like, uh, maybe like 40 yards wide Mm -hmm. was like this school of permit. There was just so many of them. That's wild. Like, it, yeah, it it was, and then there was like there was a bull shark in the mix. Like there was two bull sharks in the mix too. Cool. So then like that adds like the the other pressure and like so we we casted so many lines into yeah. like that that school and like since the sharks were there, like the school's like moving around, so it's like the constant like having to change like your angle to get mm-hmm. into like and then like the school would break up a little bit, so then there'd be like a, a little school on like the right and then a little on the left so then it's like Mm -hmm. and the guide was like honestly you could probably just blind cast in there there's so many of them and like (laughs) but like it took like a while and like the wind was kind of blowing so it's hard to like you know cast into the wind and change up your angle for that um but and like you know then it's like a light you want to like loft it because you have a crab on there there's not like a lot of weight so if you throw it too hard then you're gonna like get your bait off the line too so yeah there's like there's really like an art to it and then yeah, once I got one hooked, I was like, dear God, and you try to get it in fast, but then also fight it because, like, you don't want the shark to eat it, right. you know? So it's, like, it was a whole thing, and it, I don't know. It wasn't that long of a fight. It was, like, a five-minute long fight, but still, it's, like, they're they're fighting. Like, you reel it in, you keep the tension on the line, and then it just zings out, and you're like, dear God. Like, once you, like, right when you think you're, like, getting it in, then it just, like, runs. And I'm yeah. like, can you stop running away from me? Like, <laughs> But yeah, no, and then we got it on the boat. I was like, dear God, that thing is huge. Like, I've it caught was, a like, permit before. It's like the size of your torso. Like, it's yeah. I, I've caught a permit before, and that one was so much smaller. And then my boyfriend, we were looking at the photo because he was like, you can tell how much bigger it is by like the girth of the tail, like mm-hmm. how like my hand is holding it. And like my left hand, like in the permit that I've caught before, like my hand wraps around it to where like my thumb is over like my fingers, right? Mm-hmm. And then like me holding this permit that I caught yesterday like my thumb can't wrap around my fingers because it's like just so girthy on the tail (laughs) and then like he like said like you know my right hand too like in the the smaller permit like my hand is almost like touching its pec fin Mm -hmm. and then like in the one that I caught yesterday like my hand is like so much farther away from the pec fin he's like you can tell like just from your hands how big yeah (laughs) like it is creeping on you now yeah, I put a comparison photo. I can send you the comparison photo, but I put the comparison po- that's photo. That's like that's bigger than your torso. My God. Yeah. So the I, I'll I'll send you the comparison photo because I also put it on my story. But it's like, um, like the one that I caught. I think that was like two years ago. Is like as big as my torso, and then the one that I caught yesterday, like it's yeah, like me and my boyfriend took a picture with it, and it's like from head to tail it's like bigger than the width it's, of both of our bodies it's like the size of a of a small child like yeah <laughs> so and like I, the thing was probably like i don't know 20 pounds like it he was heavy yeah thick thick boy yeah thick boy that was fun though yeah, and that was like was cool that was like the day making fish like we caught some other like little things like we yeah you know like ladyfish were fun um and then like my dad caught a bluefish and then we caught some sea trout so we ate that last night nice so got some fish to take home too but that was like yeah it was a fun day yesterday that's good that's fun um i guess my happy thing other than the fact that the weather is gorgeous so i've been like having all my breakfasts outside lately it's been Mm -hmm. so nice um but Corey and i finally built 
a legit stable outdoor couch which we've I been saw that trying to do for years but we just didn't have expertise until now and yeah. it just like is a biomarker for our DIY skills that we are actually able to build something like that yeah that's awesome um and it's all from driftwood that Corey found in Matagorda Bay and when I say driftwood I mean it wasn't like a, like a branch from a tree it's you know somebody's dock fell apart during a storm <laughs> probably yeah it's like two by fours like yeah five by sixes or whatever the numbers are so Corey found it while he was out sampling and they just hoarded it all and brought it back on the boat with them so that we could so we still have a ton of leftover that's wood, awesome um that we may do other things with but and it was all in pretty good shape like there wasn't a lot of biofouling or algae or stuff like that so we were able to sand off most of the really nasty parts but yeah um, that's awesome it turned out super cute and I took a nap on it yesterday was it comfy it was very comfy that's good nice (laughs) so I guess that's my that's my happy thing um yeah yeah all right so I guess we're coming to the end of the episode um so where can our listeners find us you guys can find us on Instagram at Mother Nature Will Kill You Podcast. And we're on Facebook now, too. What's that? What do you it's, name it? Mother Nature it's Will also Kill Mother Podcast? Nature Will Kill You Podcast. Okay. Or just, and, I think Mother Nature Will Kill You. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm. we're also on TikTok, and I still need to make videos for it. So stay tuned <laughs> for that. But we are on TikTok, and I plan to make videos as soon as possible. And I'm trying to remember the name of our TikTok. So let me just switch to it real quick because there's so many different names. It's M-N-W-K-Y podcast. That's what it's called. Yeah. Uh, so that's on TikTok. And those videos on TikTok will more or less be like green screen videos of us talking about um, our episodes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I'm really bad. And maybe at... some fun stuff in there too, you know, <laughs> like, you know, the the current memes of yeah, Nicolas Cage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel so awkward because I I'm a so I'm definitely a millennial um I'm a younger millennial so I should be like cool with making videos of myself I hate it I hate it so much yeah no I trust me I get it I hate it too but I just I just try to lean into it like I made a TikTok the other day before we went to the Willie Nelson concert and I was just like okay like tell me which shirt to pick and I I was like I I cringed at myself but also like it's one of those things where like people interact like somebody is going to comment on this you know it's like that's just how social media works like it sounds so stupid when you're making the video but honestly like if you need an answer to somebody somebody is going to comment on that Mm -hmm. like it like there's so many people that use social media like it's crazy it's but I definitely like I definitely cringed at myself I was like I hate this but I'm also trying to figure out TikTok like I don't understand it like I get Instagram way better than TikTok It's because we're and, millennials. That's why. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Instagram, like, I could do like an online coaching course, like, three day course of like how to use Instagram. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, <laughs> I know that shit, but put me on TikTok. None of that makes sense to me. I'm like, you post at peak times that you would on Instagram, but it doesn't mm-hmm. work on TikTok. And like, yeah. the algorithm's just so much different. And then it is. Yeah. It seems like on my end, TikTok for me is more people like talking about stuff and it's like informational. But then mm-hmm. there's like TikTok for the younger generation that's like all just stupid dances and shit yep. and like yep. trendy stuff. And it's like, yep. who cares about that? Like, I want to use it to like know things. Yeah. So then it's like, yeah, it's it, yeah. So it's I'm trying to figure TikTok out, too. So 
if you see me making some shit on my personal account, it's just me testing the waters. That's really, (laughs) that's really honestly what it is. I'm like, oh yeah, I love your TikToks. I think they're really good and they should get more traction because you're like doing TikToks like a lot of other people I follow, like you have a very similar formula. And so like, it should be interesting, but I don't know. I don't know how the algorithm works on there either. And I feel like it changes all the time too. So yeah, like honestly like some shit that I don't think is gonna work works and I'm like mm-hmm. like the I think the one that has the most views for me is me like talking about how I chaotically mince up garlic and then send it to my brother because he used to go to culinary school and I know it's gonna piss him off <laughs> like like that's the shit that works but like me talking about how to prepare for a hurricane coming like gets or like how you like, live in the Florida Keys yeah like, like that doesn't work <laughs> like, lifestyle what? videos <laughs> yeah like, okay so bruh like, I don't know I don't yeah. know I barely can handle Instagram reels, so if you see me on there, I'm real awkward, and I have taken, like, so many takes for each of those (laughs) videos. It's ridiculous. Um, I just, I think one of my biggest tips for people that, like, make videos or content on social media is, like, and, and they're new to it, and they're intimidated by it, is, like, honestly, like, I know it's hard to not care, but, like, you really just have to not care. Yeah. Like, people, like, what you pick up on people aren't gonna be like oh like they said this word weird so I'm not gonna watch the rest of this like no one fucking cares like yeah Uh, so um all right so speaking of all that we do have a website which is uh mother nature will kill you podcast.com yeah (laughs) I never do the the tag so I don't but anyway um so and if you have a personal survival story or a family member survival story that you want to share if you've been down Bushman's Hole and lived to tell the tale, we want to hear about it. But, you know, if you've done something slightly less scary, but still a little nerve wracking, like, I don't know, been on a boat in a lightning storm or got lost in the woods for a couple of hours, we want to hear about it. Um, and you can send that either to our email or you can go on our website and we have a story submission page on there. Um And if you want to support the podcast, but you don't have any money because they live in a capitalistic hellscape. (laughs) At least literally like (laughs) miming all the things I'm saying. Uh, You can um, give us a five-star review on any of the podcast listening apps, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts to help with that algorithm because they're all effing different. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. Uh, with that moving on into the new year and gonna be keep talking about some weird stuff and some interesting stuff and I I'll I'll have a good one in there to lift everyone's spirits up every once in a while (laughs) yeah I can't Um, believe we're already like in March I'm like I know already flying by um all right well so with that um until next I'm gonna ruin this again I feel like until next time this is what I say. Like I'm now I'm overthinking it because I was nervous about last time. <laughs> well, until next time. Stay safe. But most of all, stay curious, explorers. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>